I hope you have your Bible open to Mark chapter 9. We, after a bit of a, a week of a break from our study in Mark 9, we're back at it here and we are at verses 38 through 41. We will pre- I will preach uh, next week 42 through 50, the end of chapter 9, and then Eric Spohr will be here uh, the, second half, the second weekend in February, and then we'll pick up, uh, as I have noted before, we will take a, um, a bit of a longer look at Mark chapter 10, and we will actually spend a few weeks uh, looking at other passages of Scripture that speak about uh, what is being talked about, Mark 10, on divorce. Let me say by a word, uh, as a word of introduction, uh, to give a bit of a warning for this passage here in Mark 9, 38 through 41 this morning. Uh, the Word of God, this message uh, from the Word of God, might cut a bit deeper than you like. Uh, it has certainly cut me a bit deeper than, than I have liked as I have studied this passage. Uh, but I say that in warning because I hope and trust that you know by now that as your pastor, I love you. I care for you, I'm on your side, and I simply want to deliver the message of the scripture as accurately and clearly as possible, meaning uh, I'm not, uh, I don't have any intention of using this passage, or hopefully any passage for that matter, as a, as a bully club for my own agenda, uh, or to sort of uh, bop you on the head rather than, than using this pulpit sort of as a barrier, and I'm just going to reach out there and kind of whack you a little bit. Uh, rather than also uh, coming into your home and speaking with you or talking with you in person. And I trust if you ever do feel that I'm using it as a a bully club, that you will come and talk with me about it. Um, And yet, though this passage does cut a bit deeper, I think we'll also find that it uh, highlights for us uh, some great truth and great encouragement. And I trust that we will see that together. Let's look at Mark and hear from our Heavenly Father this morning. I've divided this passage into two sections. Uh, The first section is really the comment of concern by the Apostle John upon behalf of the disciples and the response. Then the second half is the response of Christ. You see verse 38 is really that first section and 39 through 41 is the response of Christ. If you're taking notes this morning and you want a uh, singular sentence that will help encapsulate the truth of this passage, 38 through 41, you might jot down this sentence. All those who follow Christ are united for the glory of Christ. All those who follow Christ are united for the glory of Christ. Let's look at this first section in verse 38, which I've entitled, Unity in Christ, Not in Status. Unity in Christ, Not in Status. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. And we have a, a, a bit of an interesting note right out of the gate, which is this, the fact that John is speaking. This is the first time in the entire gospel of Mark, nine, almost ten chapters now, that John has spoken up. Now, he may have spoken up before this, but this is the only time that we have so far that John has spoken. If you remember from two weeks ago, I noted that this is the, the second passion prediction. In verse 30 through 32, Christ predicts again his death at the hands of men. That's the second time. The first time was back in Mark 8. And following the passion prediction, there's this question of sort of disbelief by the disciples. And then Christ launches into a time of teaching them. 
Well, in the first passion prediction, you'll remember that the person who spoke up was, the, was Peter. Peter doesn't have any problems speaking clearly out and saying, hey, I've got a problem with this. Well, in this second passion prediction, John is the one who speaks up. We'll look at in a couple weeks, the third passion prediction, James and John speak up. Peter, James, John, all three of those men on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you will, the sort of core of the hierarchy or the core of the, these men that were known as the disciples. And really, I think uh, it's, a, it's pointing out, it's highlighting for us the grace of God to use at their very best men that are frail and weak, men that are sinners. Here's the, here's the three men by which Christ has with him in, in close fellowship, have seen the, 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 the Christ, the pre-glorified risen Christ, have seen him there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And yet, it isn't but a few minutes, seemingly. It isn't but a few moments. It isn't but, but a few hours. And, and there they go again often to some tangent of untruth, often to some question that's off base. And really it highlights for us the fact that, that God, in his grace, uses at the best men, weak, frail sinners, to do his bidding, to, do, to build his kingdom. So you might be sitting there this morning thinking, you know, if in our time of corporate confession of sin, I'm thinking back to this week and I'm thinking, there's just, there's just no reason for me to be sitting here this morning I've looked at this I've thought about that I did this I can join Paul and say I'm the chief of sinners I'm, I'm, I'm feeling worthless this morning and this, this just first word John highlights for us that God delights to use the weak and frail of this world and really that all he has to work with is sinners you and me. He doesn't have anything better to work with. And the reason he does is because he doesn't need anything better to work with. Because he has his son Christ. Whose perfection was enough. Enough to take us as weak and frail. And God delights then to use the weak and frail. To highlight his strength and glory. John, if you remember, back in chapter 3, verse 17 of Mark, he's given sort of this nickname title with his brother James, the Sons of Thunder. And here's this guy who is even now here in Mark 9 speaking out, out of turn, which we'll see here in a minute, and yet by the mercy and grace of God, he is the one who's transferred to the apostle of love. In John uh, 1 and then uh, John 2 and John 3, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Gospel of John, we see him as the Apostle of Love. God's grace that transforms sinners, and he uses these men as imperfect as they are, as he delights to use us. Well, John speaks up and he, he addresses Christ about an interesting situation. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And interestingly enough, if you remember the context of this passage, just maybe take your eyes slightly left in your Bible. You'll remember back in Mark uh, chapter 9, the fact that here is these men in chapter, excuse me, in verse 18. The disciples, 
that are trying to cast out with great difficulty and ultimately are unable to do so, demons. Verse 18, Mark 9. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out and they were not able to do so. Remember in verse 34 of Mark 9, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. Is it me? Is it you? Peter, James, John may be saying, listen, you guys got nothing on us now. We have been with the pre-glorified Christ. And then here, in verse 38, John, interestingly enough, comes and asks Christ about a specific situation that is going on where this man is having success, obviously casting out demons in the name of Christ, something that previously only they were able to do and now find themselves unable to do. Do you hear a tone of maybe a bit of jealousy? A little bit of rivalry maybe there? That man is casting out demons in your name. Isn't that what we as your disciples have exclusive rights to do? Shut him down. Why couldn't we have done this before? Aren't we the the greatest? In many ways, the disciples were right to be protective. They want, we should be about protecting uh, the name and testimony of Jesus Christ. And yet, these men were blinded as to what they should be protecting. And instead, they get caught up in protecting the wrong thing. Notice, they say, because he was not following us. They, they have just stated, we tried to stop him. And they don't say, we tried to stop him because he was using your name in blasphemy. We, we tried to stop him because he wasn't obeying you. We, no, no, no. They say, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. If they would have said, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following you, that would have been a whole different matter. But essentially what they're saying is, he, he's not part of the clique. He isn't part of this, the, the, the group here. He hasn't been treading the path with us. He hasn't been walking around getting dusty. He hasn't been following us. He didn't leave father, mother, and all these other things behind and have joined with us. He's not part of our group. Kick him out. And yet, they missed it. Look how Christ responds. This first section was unity in Christ, not status. I've marked the response of Christ. The second section here is for us is not against us. For us is not against us. Christ doesn't waste much time here. He responds directly. Do not stop him. And if you sort of carry that thought into verse 40, do not stop him, for if he's for us, he can't be against us. Now, there's Old Testament precedents here. You, uh, if you have your Bible, just turn over uh, to the beginning of the Bible to the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 11. Here is a, a situation in the life of Moses that mirrors pretty well what is going on with the disciples here in Mark chapter 9. 
The elders have been appointed now to aid Moses and there's more than 12 of them. Verse 16 of Numbers chapter 11 tells us that there are 70 of these men and God in his grace comes down and anoints these men with the ability to lead in the way that that was now given as a sign to the people that these were to be the men that were to lead is he um, allows them to prophesy. Verse 25, then the Lord came down in the cloud, spoke to him, took some of the spirit that was on him, put him on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but notice they did not continue doing it. Verse 26, now two men remained in the camp. So now these, there's these 70 that are doing it here. And then these two other men that are not in the tent, they're over in the camp, and they're continuing. One Eldad, the other named Madad, and the spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. Seventy were given the ability, and here were two others that were not with them, and they're over here in the camp. And you sort of get this picture of a young man going, I'm going to tell on these guys. So he comes running to Moses. Eldad, Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, says, my Lord, Moses, stop them. Moses, like Christ in Mark 9, seems to sense that the request for stopping is for the wrong reasons. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets so that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Verse 29 there is actually a foreshadowing of Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 where the Holy Spirit comes down upon the believers, the new church. So there's Old Testament here, Old Testament prophecy, uh, Old Testament precedent here essentially saying if, if one is, is not against us, he's for us. But notice essentially what he's saying, not necessarily like us. He's doing the work of God in the name of Christ, but he's, he's not doing it exactly. He's not, he's not right with us. These men in the Old Testament were apart from the elders. Here, these, this man, obviously, here in Mark 9, is, is not part of the group, and yet he's doing the work of God. Christ here teaching his disciples really that there are only two options. Either you are together in Christ or you are apart and then apart from Christ. If you're apart from Christ, you're apart from one another. If you're together in Christ, you're together. And there isn't a neutral third option. You're not going to be able to be for Christ, against or against Christ, or some middle of the line road. Where you could sort of get, well, you know, today I believe in Jesus, tomorrow I want to do my own thing. Yeah, I, I, I love and like Jesus, but that, that saving me from my sins, repentance, holiness, going with others, that's, that's not something I'm interested in. There's really, there's no third option. And it highlights for us in, in, in verse 40 of Mark 9, for the one who is not against us is for us, it highlights for us the, the, the two options that are available for every person in the gospel. Either you believe in Jesus Christ as described and proclaimed in the word of God, or you don't. You don't get, 
any other option. And the merit of one's eternal life and eternal soul in heaven or hell rests upon one of those two options. It's it's exclusive. The binding truth or relationship with one another here is about the work of Jesus Christ, is about the work of the gospel. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, I like Jesus. I love Jesus. I think I do. I I come to church most often. Yeah, this and that. The question is for you, do, do, do you believe that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for sinners? And have you, in accordance with that belief, repented of your sin? Is there fruit of it? What, what, what fruit would you give as evidence of the inward change of the Spirit? There's, because there's only two options. You either, uh, you either achieve relationship with God by the person and work of Jesus Christ, or you don't have a relationship with God. And then if you have relationship with God and others have relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, your relationship with them, your, your love for them and with them, your ministry with them is defined not by, by your uh, personal convictions or conscience or the peripherals of beliefs or your preference of how one does ministry or whatever it might be, but it's now united together on the the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that which is the binding truth of relationships. And let's be warned here. We aren't aren't saying, this passage is saying, now, now we're to water down Christ in the gospel in order to gain unity because that's not what this passage is saying. It's actually pointing to the exclusivity and the inclusivity of the gospel and the fact that, that only through Christ, by grace, have you been saved. And it's only the, the unity that comes with us as believers is if we are holding together on a true gospel. We can't achieve unity by sort of watering it down and kind of meandering it through and sort of, well, okay, this is a little hard doctrine, so I'll kind of I'll water this one down over here. Oh, this, one, this one looks better, so I'll lift this one. No, 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 no. We're unified on the person and work of Jesus Christ as according to the scriptures. And then, therefore, we should have great unity together even amidst our diversity. The world around us wants diversity and unity, but that's impossible. You can't have diversity and unity, and yet the Bible says that in our unity, there is diversity. But the unity is first And foremost, and only when our unity is in the gospel, the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. Note there, verse 41, the unity in the church around the person and work of Jesus Christ because you belong to Christ. The emphasis that is this whole passage is the the disciples are, are being taught by Christ. Listen, in the work of serving the kingdom of God in imitation to Christ, humbly, who cares who gets the credit as long as the name of Christ is lifted high? 
primary point is the lifting high of the name of Christ for the glory of God, not jealousy or rivalry over who gets the credit. Who cares if if another person over here, a believer in Jesus Christ articulating a sound gospel, gets, gets more success? Is Christ lifted high? Is he glorified? Notice the the carrying out of verse 41, which I'll talk about in a minute. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What we've got to remember is serving Christ in humble obedience comes, whether, whether it's a small thing or whether it's a big thing, in the eyes of God, it comes with a gracious blessing and that is eternal reward. Notice here, he, he's simply in 41 giving an example contrasting the mighty work of casting out demons with the simple, seemingly insignificant work of giving someone a a cup of water, meaning that there are no longer distinctions in the economy of Christ between big or small, between, between simple or important tasks. There's only faith and obedience when displayed in devotion to Christ then calls forth the approval of God. So whether you are serving, literally giving uh, someone in church a cup of water because they're a believer in Jesus Christ, serving them, delighting them to say, you're a brother, you're a sister in Christ, and so I want to serve you by getting you water at the fellowship luncheon, or by giving them $10,000 to pay off their car payment, whatever else you want to describe as a big thing in the eyes of God out of faith and obedience, there is the blessing of eternal reward. It's no longer, is it big or small? That's the point that the disciples were going after. How do we get the big stuff? Who's greatest here? And Christ is saying, humble yourself and serve well. Humble yourself and serve another. Whether it's simple or important, whether it's big or small, when displayed in devotion, humble devotion to Christ and obedience out of faith, it calls forth the approval of God. And some of the greatest ministry done in churches over the history of church has been the person who walks in faithfully every Sunday morning, Wednesday evening, or whenever, and serves the body simply. Taught the two and three-year-old Sunday school class for 45 years. Was the usher at the church for 55 years. Whatever it is, just humbly, quietly, simply serving. Serving one another because we belong to Christ and are unified in the gospel. And then a proper response to the gospel believers is that if we do see that Christ has given us by his grace the exclusive rights to being part of the gospel, then we now uh, have the added motivation to be able to say, because I belong to Christ, I want to imitate Christ in order that I might gain reward so that according to Revelations 4, 10, and 11, I can then cast these rewards at his feet. The incomprehensible blessing of being rewarded for imitating Christ. Why should we be rewarded for imitating Christ? It's a gift of grace. And yet he rewards us on top of the gift that we might give him greater worship. The first two paragraphs of the membership affirmation here at FCF Let me just read these two. They're short. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ 
and to give up ourselves to him. And having been baptized upon a profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now rely, relying on this gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our commitment with each other. We will work and pray for, for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That is what we're about. We're unified on the person and work of Jesus Christ, and therefore we're working together, praying for one another, serving one another, in the spirit of bond of peace in order that Christ might be glorified. It doesn't get much broader than that. And so for, by way of application, the question for us this morning is, how can you serve others in this body more faithfully? It could be just simply a cup of cold water. I, 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 was, I was encouraged this, this, this week as I was studying this passage to think when I get Nanny Rose her black cup of coffee on first light when she comes walking in, that's application of this passage. That's, that's, that's just application of this passage. You can do the same thing. You can walk into the fellowship luncheon in two weeks. You can see a young mother with three or four kids and you can go get them a cup of water. That's, that as its basis is application of this passage. Meaning that's my sister in Christ. Let me serve her in this way. That means application for this passage can certainly grow more, which we'll look at in a minute, but it can be as simple as you children looking around and saying, how can I help this person? Can I carry their bag to the car? Oh, their hands are full. Maybe I should go with them and open the door to the car. That's serving another in the name of Christ, meaning they're part of Christ. They belong to Christ. I belong to Christ. Let me serve them for his glory. Maybe it's, maybe it's sharing a scripture verse by way of text or email or phone call that have been, that's been particularly impactful for you this week. Maybe it's passing along a, a sermon that you heard and you thought that was very encouraging. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, oh, this was both challenging and encouraging to me from the word of God this week and somebody wasn't here and I'm going to send this along to them. Maybe it's making them a meal. Maybe it's saying, well, there's... There's a husband and wife. They probably haven't been on a date in a while. They've got a couple of young children. We have a bunch of young children in our church. I'm going to babysit their children so that they could go on an hour or two date. Maybe it's showing them hospitality, having them over. Uh, maybe it's praying for them, writing a note of encouraging, encouragement. Maybe it's looking around and saying, you know, I, I haven't sit, sat with this person in a while in church. And so I'm going to sing the truth of God's word with them. So I'm going to go sit with them next week. Maybe it's assisting a, a young mother's. Maybe it's expressing thankfulness in meaningful ways. Maybe it's uh, calling someone up and encouraging them in a discipleship relationship. There are multitudes and multitudes and multitudes and I trust by the power of the Spirit their creativity will be there to make application. But essentially what we're looking to do is can we serve one another even amidst our diversity for the glory of Christ that the gospel might be proclaimed? In closing... We live in a world that preaches inclusivity at all costs. We want everyone to be included. Everyone gets a trophy. Everyone gets equal status. And yet then they wonder and they shriek at why no one can get along. 
And they think, well, if I, if I put the coexist bumper sticker on the back of my car, then, then surely that will help us all sort of coexist together. If I'm politically correct enough, everyone's going to get along, and yet they don't. And half the time, they're, they're clawing at one another for the purpose of getting along, and the other half of the time, they're planning on clawing at one another to help each other get along. We're as uninclusive as we could possibly be. And then... Then you pick up the Bible, which tells us that only exclusively, only by Christ can we have fellowship with God, with one another and the world. And then, let's be honest, even the church-going people in the world around us say, foul. Get rid of the exclusive part. We're all supposed to be included together. And yet, they fail to realize that in the exclusivity of the gospel is incredible comfort and the only possibility for true coexistence with all that are included. See, once you're exclusively part of the kingdom of heaven by the work of Christ, now we all can peaceably walk together, even amidst our diversity, because we're unified around the central realization that only by grace have we been saved through faith. The exclusivity of Christ is what makes the gospel incredibly comforting. Because the exclusivity of Christ places the full measure of being included in the kingdom of heaven solely on the merit of Jesus Christ given to us by the grace of God. My being included is all of grace. It's a free gift. And so when we look around at others that are around us that are markably different, but included because he chose them, we realize that we can have peace and coexist with another believer because we are both sitting here because of him doing the work for us, saving us. So what about you this morning? Or what about us as, as a church, a Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship? How's, how's your heart attitude? How's my heart, how's our heart attitude when we see spiritual success happening by others that are different than me or different than you. Maybe they aren't as conservative. Maybe they aren't as well-versed. Maybe they haven't known the Lord as long. How's your heart attitude? Is it jealous or proud? Is it excited? Is it discouraged? You'll notice the title of the sermon this morning is For or against, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but I have sort of wondered how many thought the title was referring to whether you are for or against Christ, and you obviously, and of course, can make the point in the text for that question, are you for or against Christ? But I also chose that title because are you for or against one another on the basis of preference? Are you for or against one another on the basis of peripherals? For or against one another because you're, you're like-minded in lifestyle or minor doctrinal beliefs? Are you for or against one another because you believe in modesty or conservative values or educating children at home or not drinking alcohol, abstaining from this or that or eating a certain diet, having your children at home, not using modern medicine, only listening to certain music? Is that the basis of why you're here? Is that the basis of your relationship with one another? Could you 
Would you have another member in church in your home for a meal with delight? That they didn't do it all the same way and actually believe different and yet your mutual excitement about the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ draws you together? We've probably all heard the, the stronger, weaker brother phraseology. And a lot of times I, I think I have been caught thinking as I walk around thinking I'm the stronger brother. If that person would believe as, as Cody believes, if, if that person would do as Cody does, and that person would think as Cody thinks, and if that person would dress as Cody dresses or eats as Cody eats, and then they'd be the stronger brother with me. When in actuality, when I think like that, I'm actually thinking as a weaker brother. Because the truly strong brother realizes that peripherals and preferences aren't the ultimate defining issue the gospel is. You see, we've got to understand clearly what Christ is teaching us here in 38 through 41 is that if we make matters of preference, peripherals, and non-salvation doctrines, grounds for fellowship and unity with one another, we're actually elevating those things above the unity that is to be there from a like-minded belief of the scriptural teaching of Christ, namely the gospel. The danger of disunity amongst believers over preferences and minor doctrines is the presenting to the world a false gospel and a missed opportunity to showcase a true gospel. That Christ unifies a diverse people with a holy God by grace for the glory of God. When you get up to leave here in a few minutes, I want you to do something for me. I want you to look around and I want you to ask yourself the question. Am I united with these people over the truth of the gospel or over other things? And one more question. If someone walked into this church today as a visitor, what would they say unifies Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship? And I trusted that as you ask those questions, God glorifying fruit can and will come from asking those questions. Let's pray. Father, it is a wonder and a mystery that we are united here together under the preaching of your word. The world says we should be at each other's throats this morning because we're profoundly different. The world says we, we shouldn't get along because our tax brackets are different. Because our, the cost of our cars are different. Because our choice of clothing is different because of our choice of our food, our hobbies, our, our business, our education is different. And yet, Father, this church and many churches this morning and around the globe stand as a beacon of truth in proclaiming that where there is unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is the beauty of diversity reflecting that diverse and wonderful and incomprehensible and eternal character of God. Father, may we be those who 
stand firm upon the truth and study the word faithfully to know what we believe and yet also have the maturity to give grace and encourage and challenge and lift up. Rebuke when necessary. Encourage when necessary. Strengthen as we are able. But all together, Father, with the purpose, all together with the desire that we might bring about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Praying for one another. Uniting together around who you are and what you have done. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the the one truth that has brought us all here together this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Well, I trust that has, uh, you might gain encouragement from God's word this morning. Uh, as I stated, I think it's a bit of a cutting uh, passage of scripture, and yet I know God uh, delights to use these things to encourage our hearts, and I trust that as we will continue to submit to him, he will encourage your soul and help us make application even this morning with one another. Thank you for listening faithfully.